The following podcast is a member of the Pokecasters Network. Pokecasters Network, supporting Pokemon content creators, their shows, and the community of Pokemon fans. To find out more, check out pokecastersnetwork.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook. Welcome to the Pokepress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. In this episode, Anne from Pinky Podcast joins me to discuss the music of Pokemon Battle Revolution for the Wii. This follow-up to Genius Sonority's GameCube titles has a number of venues with a diverse set of tunes, plus an announcer to boot. It may also have some shortcomings from being released early in the system's life. As usual, if you want to know what we thought of the game itself, there's a bonus segment after the outro. Thanks. Hi folks, Steven here. I'm on the phone with Anne from PQE Podcast. And after several, I guess you could say, side episodes in Between Generations, we're finally ready to talk about the first side Pokemon game of Generation 4, the Diamond and Pearl Generation. And that is Pokemon Battle Revolution for the Wii. There's actually a fair bit of material to cover here, both with the being a new generation and a new system and all that stuff. We'll try to cover as much of it as we can in the time that we have. So first off, let's sort of talk about a little bit of background on this. This was a very early Wii game, actually. In Japan, it released in December of 2006, so less than a month after the system came out there. In the U.S. and Europe, it had to wait a little bit longer because at that point, Diamond and Pearl weren't out yet, so the game tied to them wouldn't make much sense to put it out. But in the U.S., we got it in... June of 2007, and then Europe and Australia got it late in the year. This is still when things were pretty spaced out sometimes, so that's not entirely surprising. Um, since this is not only a new uh, generation and a new game and all that stuff, but also a new system, I kind of want to talk uh, about the, the Wii itself just a little bit. Now... Until a few months ago, from when we were recording this, the Wii was Nintendo's best-selling home console. The Switch has now surpassed it. But as far as getting the system itself, uh, I didn't get it on launch day. But about a week before Christmas or so, when the last shipment was coming and I got wind of that, and I decided to camp out in front of a Best Buy in La Crosse, Wisconsin. I was in college at the time. And uh, it could have been a lot worse. It was in like the 20s overnight. You could get a lot worse in Wisconsin in December. So it was tolerable. But I did basically camp out in front overnight and get the system. Not a, an experience I care to repeat uh, anytime soon. But, Anne, what was your sort of experience with the system itself? How did you get exposed to it? Well, I definitely did not get it on launch day because how old was I even? I would have been like, very much not able to get us any system on its launch day. I remember when I got my Wii, I got the Wii Mini, and it was like we were well into the Wii U generation. Um, but because it was now an older quote unquote console, I was able to get it refurbished, uh, used for cheap. It was bright red Mario themed, and I loved that thing a lot. I don't have it anymore because I. I had to um, pawn it off to get my Switch, but it was a lot of fun playing games on that thing. 
Well, I kind of recommend you actually get a, a regular Wii, not the Wii Mini, if you're trying to buy one used. So if you ever get the opportunity to pick one of those up, I actually a lot of folks just recommend you get a Wii U if you can find one on the used market. But yeah, I mean, it was a, a cultural phenomenon, just the system itself. Mm-hmm. Like we hadn't really seen um, anything like it. Yeah. As far as this particular game, though, that came out in the States in 2007. So I think I was aware of it, but I think I first uh, I think I first got some practice in with it at a I think a GameStop event. They did a, a like a one day tournament type of deal where you could bring your DS in, and the winner of the whole tournament actually got a copy of the game. I wasn't the oh, winner, so wow. I didn't get it that way. <laughs> I think I got it for maybe my birthday in 2007, and you know certainly played through it a fair bit and stuff like that. And what was your sort of experience with this game? It sounds like you got must have gotten it. Did you play it at someone else's place, or how did that all come come about? Yeah, so it's kind of like it. It surprises me, like looking at the timeline and thinking about it, and like you know when the, all the dates would have gone down. But I actually played this when I was living in Japan, um, like somebody in the dorms had a Wii and like we would have like just parties where we would play Wii games and this is one of the games that was brought to the table occasionally because it was a a fun one to play or watch other people play um and it didn't have a ton of plot so you didn't feel like you were missing much if you like weren't there one of the get-togethers or something so I I played and watched people play this game a lot um in very sporadic bursts in the evenings. Yeah, it has some significance. It was the first, uh, like, Wii Disc game that used online. I mean, obviously the system did have some online capacity from the start to get to, like, the Wii Shop channel, but this was the first game that actually used online on the Wii, which had sort of been trialed on the DS a few years earlier. As far as the game's production, it was produced by Genius Sonority, which should be a pretty familiar name, of course, they also produced the GameCube Pokemon battling games, Pokemon Coliseum, and XD Gale of Darkness. We've done discussions on both of those games. You can check the archives. Based on, on what we kind of know, it, it seems like they may not have had a ton of time to work on this and may have had to... Uh, it's hard to say exactly what got cut or stuff like that. We'll talk more about that, I suppose, later. But uh, going on to the music, another non-surprise here, Tsukasa Tawada is credited as the musician for this game. He also worked on Colosseum and Gale of Darkness, and I would say the style, instrument-wise, is pretty similar in terms of the sample used. Um, but the the overall musical style, uh, the game takes place in something called Poketopia, which is sort of this, uh, well, it's a City of Tomorrow type of thing, so a lot of the music in the game is very electronic based uh, and i assume that was your assessment as well absolutely 100 <laughs> percent. yeah i think that does some interesting things to the structure of some of the songs and stuff like that and sort of changes mm-hmm. like there was high tech stuff in the gamecube games that that were made but this goes in a little bit of a different direction yeah it, it's like in the I don't know, later games that came to the Wii, like it doesn't feel like it's all that, but it really is a step above in a lot of ways some of the games that came before. Hmm, interesting. Well, well not sure. We'll, we'll talk more about that. Uh, okay, yeah, maybe that made more sense in my head. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. 
In any case, we've done what we usually do here. Anne and I have each picked out three songs. Let's see, the ones I picked out were Main Street Coliseum, Courtyard Coliseum, and Joe's Theme. And what were the three you picked out? Yes, I picked Kruger's Theme, uh, the Lagoon Theme, and uh, Mysterials Theme, the Final Battle Theme. Yeah, so we're going to do uh, what we usually do and go one by one. Uh, alternating on this is how we usually try to work it out. So I, I've kind of arranged these in loosely in order, kind of like you would experience in the game. You do have, like like some of the other Pokemon Stadium-type games, um, you do have some flexibility in what order you complete certain things, so it's hard to come up with an exact order for some of this. But my first song is Main Street Coliseum. So sort of the some of the descriptors I came up with this, it seems like it's there's a very busy quality to it, uh, which I think is supposed to suggest that there are things going on in and around the Coliseum within the city. Like there are people passing by and stuff like that. There's a lot of beep isn't quite the word I want to use, but very synth type instruments and stuff like that. That's just a very busy atmosphere. And is that sort of the, the vibe you got? Yes. Busy is the good word. Like every even a mellow track like has a lot of movement in its music. Yeah, and you know, one instrument I noticed was the horns, which are they seem like they're trying to grab the attention of the players almost as if someone's like walking down the main street. Mm. It's a little bit interesting the way the music is structured in terms of not not like the actual compositions, but how it's used. Every venue in this game has a, a theme associated with it, as opposed to like in the Coliseum and Gale of Darkness or in, in a more usual Pokemon game, you'd kind of expect each city or each town or each area to have its own thing. So they had to do something a little bit different here, it, it seems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely with Main Street, like you get the vibe of like the hustle and bustle of the city, as you're saying, like listening to it without the context of Pokemon, like, I, I could almost see a Tron-style racing game with mu music like this. Like, I get the sense of, like, roads and, and like, just going very fast down the road past all the buildings in this futuristic world kind of a feeling. Yeah, now from a music appreciation portion, though, I do think that there's a lot of... This track is kind of... um uh, emblematic of sort of a lot of darting around that some of the more electronic-focused tracks do. And what I kind of mean by that is if you go back to this stuff from Coliseum and Gale of Darkness, the, the tracks are about as long for a lot of the battle themes, but they seem to follow more, I don't know if linear is the right word, but more the instrumentation seems to build on itself a little more directly, if that makes sense. Whereas with this one, I, I felt like your attention was, was, as far as the music goes, it wasn't so, you know, it isn't super distracting or anything. It doesn't uh, hamper the gameplay aspect. But from a musical perspective, it does kind of feel like your attention is being shifted every few measures or whatever like that. And did you get that feeling from this track? Yeah, it does have a lot of different movements, which I kind of like because, as you say, it's not super distracting or anything, but it doesn't – it keeps it from getting repetitive. It, like, shifts its – I don't know, its vibe or its rhythm or its speed or, or, like, you know, it just changes ever so slightly every so often just enough that, you know, if, say, it was on loop for a while, 
you could let it be in the background, but also not be bored by it. All right. Well, basically, when I chose this track, I was trying to set a few seeds for later. But, well, <laughs> Anne, why don't we go on to your first track? This is the Lagoon Coliseum. Now, if you don't recall this, uh, maybe it's because you never battled online, because that's what this area is used for. And why don't you tell us a little bit about the music that plays there? Yeah, so I picked this theme less because I remembered it so well from my bygone days, clearly, but because, like, it's just such a fascinating track. Like, if we thought the Main Street had kind of, you know, a futuristic city vibe and a, you know, I said a Tron style vibe to it this is one where it starts out like it feels like you're making contact with the aliens and then you descend into the matrix it is all of those futuristic synth sounds and like whatever stereotypical computer world sounds you're thinking of poured into this and i feel like it's not the least i'll talk about that later but the least jazzy track in this album, the second to least jazzy track in this album, because jazz does feature heavily in many of these tracks. Yeah, including one I've picked uh, for later. Um, Mm. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely use the word, I don't know if it qualifies as techno, but there's a lot of technical aspects. And I don't mean like technique, I mean like a lot of sci-fi based stuff here, which is Kind of interesting, given that this Coliseum is actually the, like the least high tech looking out of pretty much everything, other than maybe like the Crystal or Waterfall Coliseum. But it's definitely not the most high tech looking uh, place on there. And we mentioned that this is used for the online battles. Of course, you haven't been able to do that for quite some time, at least not normally without some sort of uh, shenaniganry um, <laughs> uh, on there. So, but. Um, it was a big, important feature of the game. So it's kind of interesting they would give it its own place rather than having folks like randomly select or just have the player select a venue, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, one thing I did note about this track, though, is I almost feel like there should be something going on top of it. Like, like a, I don't know if it's like a, a rapper or something like that should go on top of this. I felt there wasn't as, as maybe as much body or melody to this one, which I, I guess, and you kind of agree with, but yeah, no, I agree. It could, it it could use an overarching little melody, especially if it were not, say, a track playing underneath a lot of gameplay. Which, given that it's kind of where you connect to the internet, it, it there's not really a ton of stuff you have to focus on. Like it could stand to take on a little extra stimulation i suppose in the form of like i said a a overarching melody but now that you mention it like when you brought up a rapper like it is the type of track that especially some years ago i would have remembered being kind of hawked as a track you could buy to lay down your sick beat so yeah like there it's, it's very much got that i don't know potential use to it yeah so that that did kind of kind of strike me there well, I think we've covered that track uh, about as well as we can. Let's go on to my second pick, which is the Courtyard Coliseum. So this is one that's shaped, uh, has a very medieval inspiration. It has mm. some interesting, I think it has like stained glass windows and stuff. It also has an element that looks kind of like a bastiodon built into the design there. Uh, gives it, I guess, a bit of a fortress feel, perhaps. <laughs> as, as far as the actual music used for it, 
this is uh, going back towards more towards traditional instrumentation. There is still a little bit of a, a high tech aspect to it, but you've got some strings, some organ, harpsichord stuff like that, um, which I think gives it a little more of a, like I said, a throwback kind of retro vibe. Um, and you know, maybe some of that's in fitting with this this Poketopia place being kind of theme parky, um, <laughs> like that, and having sort of a fantasy setting. I don't know. And uh, this is another one of those songs where I've kind of come up with a jumble of a word cloud of sorts to uh, describe it. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I have in my notes that like this track is somehow very evocative of both Zelda games and Kingdom Hearts, like specifically the Hercules Colosseum world. And like I remember like, when I heard it, I went looking through uh, Tsukasa Tawada's like IMDb and I'm not seeing like a ton of exposure to Zelda in his career but like there's something about this that really really kind of harkens those two games back to memory and I think a lot of it has to do with like this courtyard coliseum big grand fantasy medieval like there's something about um that I don't know sonic touchstone or the zeitgeist of that kind of I don't know, the music we all picture when we think of that, like, he managed to hit on it really well. It feels like you're in a castle, in a courtyard, in a coliseum, in something big and grand and fantasy-esque. I really like also the, all the little arpeggios in this track. It's just, I don't know, it just got a lot of very interesting movement to it. Yeah, speaking of movement, one of the words I, or one of the phrases I wrote down for this was night chase theme. And that's night with an N, not a K, although I suppose you could <laughs> go that way. And it sort of feels like something that could be used in that type of scenario there, maybe for a chase scene in a, in maybe not literally, but in like a around a castle or, or some other, you know, historical structure like that. I don't know, Anne, uh, any, any thoughts there? Um, I think I agree with you. I don't know if I have much to add on top of that, but I, yeah, I can kind of see that. All right, well, uh, and let's go on to one of your picks. Now, structurally, this game, every area in the game pretty much has a boss that you fight at the end of whatever challenge you're getting. Each Coliseum has a little bit of a different structure behind it, but at the end, you're going to fight a boss. And not every one of them, but some of them have their own themes. And for, for, uh, Courtyard Coliseum, the the boss character is Kruger, and he does have a theme. And why don't you tell us a little bit about this one? Yeah, so Kruger, as you say, he is a leader of the area, the Coliseum. And this theme has got, like, some very future groove, like, almost funk to it. I really like the synth vox effects, which is kind of like a synthesized, very early synthesized voicey effects added to it and it just kind of like I don't remember a ton of this guy's personality like this game doesn't have a ton in the way of plot so you didn't really get to know these characters super super well but it kind of just suggests a lot about maybe what his personality is like it's this is a very fun track and it's playful and it just kind of feels like it's improvising in a lot of ways which like, again this whole album is very jazzy in a way so there's a lot to like about this track. Yeah, Kruger's design, he you might have been expecting someone who looked more like they were in a knight in shiny armor, but that is not what it does. It, <laughs> it actually does a guy in a very flashy uh, suit type of uh, arrangement. 
Yeah, he's going to play the set while the knights joust is what. <laughs> Perhaps. I definitely agree with you on the sort of the early synth uh, on some of that. Uh, something, I don't know if it's actually uh, like I'm designed to emulate a Moog synth. I think it's, it's Moog or Moog, I forget. But Moog. It's a Moog. Yeah, but it is definitely something you might hear in the 60s or 70s, that type of synthesizer, as opposed to, say, like FM synth. It definitely sounds to me like that, unless I'm terribly wrong in my synthesizer history. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of what they go there. There is still a little bit of, I think, strings or medieval influence in this track, sort of going along with the the venue there. So that is still part of it. Any other thoughts on this one, Anne? Um, I think other than waxing rhapsodic uh, of just how funky it is, no. <laughs> Originally written for the 2000 Olympics, the extra mile predictably includes a large number of sports-related phrases, including references to races, archery, and recognition for one's personal feats. While Sydney wasn't in the cards for this song, it did manage to find a home on the Pokemon 2000 soundtrack. And it's easy to see why. In addition to the events of the movie drawing a large amount of attention, Ash is required to traverse rocky terrain, put his faith in a pair of wings, and perform other feats in order to fulfill his role. You could even consider the shrine where the ritual takes place to be a podium of sorts, or the artifact where the stones are put to be some sort of trophy case. The song doesn't solely focus on the hero, though, as during the second verse, assuming I'm interpreting it correctly, the lyrics acknowledge the contributions of others that allowed the leader to achieve their goals. In the original use case, that was probably coaches, teammates, and family members, but in the movie, you could certainly apply it to Ash's Pokemon and traveling companions. No chosen one does it alone, after all. Anyway, if you'd like to know more about this song, I have an interview with co-writer Pam Shane within the episode description. Thanks. Alright, well... Another area in the game that has a, a, a boss with a distinct theme is the Gateway Coliseum, and the boss of that one is called Joe. Uh, unlike the XD and Gale of Darkness, where they seem to kind of go out of their way to give a lot of characters very strange names, to be honest. I, I kind of joke that it sounds like something I would use in one of those unscramble the word games that you play, but th this one is just called Joe. He's uh, very much a uh, sort of a I'm not sure exactly how to describe a uh, lounge act type of thing, very much a musical performer thing. And his theme definitely heads in that direction. It's extremely jazzy. This is probably the most jazzy track in the game with a lot of saxophone and stuff. Structurally, the one thing I kind of notice is that it has a slow and a fast section that alternates, which going along with the Pokemon battle, I think is, is kind of an interesting thing, although they're, they're not really timed in any specific way. I don't know, Anne, another word cloud, I guess, but um, <laughs> what were your kind of thoughts on this one? Yeah, my thoughts were, again, this is a track that really kind of gives a suggestion of personality. Like Joe, you know, he's he's there with his blue hair and his like casino chip and diamonds on his suit. Like he looks like he's here in a Vegas casino or something. And then his theme is like the jazziest. There's so much bass. Yeah, like it just kind of, it, it's very fitting of a boss, like, and very fitting of like a Pokemon character who is important. Like he gets all the character design, he gets all the musical design. And it, again, it's a very surprising considering his name is Joe, which in 
English-speaking uh, countries is usually a very bland, bland name. <laughs> so that's very surprising. But uh, again, his Japanese name is also Joe, and maybe that's not the same association they have over there. So I don't know what the thought is behind that. Yeah, I've sometimes brought up that something being foreign can make it seem more exotic than it actually is sometimes. So that's possibly a case there. It's certainly a name they would have heard of in Japan as far as English slash Western names go. Um, and and Joe is like is a bunch of sa- Japanese syllables that they use in naming too. So it's again, I'm not sure if they're what they're going for here, but it, it's kind of a bit of an interesting choice over on this side of the ocean where we're just like, ah, ah, Joe, you, you beige, beige name. <laughs> yeah. And, and going back to the sort of fast and slow stuff, like I said, it just plays alternates between them. It doesn't do anything like, like I, I would think that maybe one thing they could have done here structurally in this game is change the music style between like when you're choosing moves between and then when those moves are actually being executed and stuff like that. For an example of where that happens, if you've played uh, Paper Mario Origami King, um, it does do something like that, where between when you're spinning the wheels to try and align the monsters versus when you're actually carrying out your actions, the music changes a little bit. Um, that's not what's what's happening here, which is maybe a bit of a missed opportunity, but probably also something they didn't have time to implement and such. All right, well, once you've gone through all the main coliseums, there's about six or eight or ten of them. I forget exactly how many there are you have to go through in the main game. Um, you eventually get to go to something called the Stargazer Coliseum, where you refight a lot of the bosses. And one new boss, which Anne has picked out the theme <laughs> from the, was basically the last battle in at least the main part of the game. This is a Mysterials battle theme. This is the last one before the end credits. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this, Anne? All right, so Mysterial, our rotund, spangled little gentleman. Uh, yeah, he's the final battle, the final boss, and the music is what is not what you'd expect considering the rest of the soundtrack, but it is what you'd expect from a final boss. Like, there is timpani. There is, like, the world of Pokemon motif uh, being weaved in through there. Like, there's also a feel of a castle and something very majestic. Like, you beat Bowser and you're standing on top of the parapet and surveying the kingdom. Or It, it is the least jazzy track, I think. Like, it feels very much like an orchestra vibe, this particular song um and again it's it's a what you'd expect from a final battle theme it's not necessarily what i would have expected from the design of mysterial like i said he's a very interesting character like i would have expected something maybe a little bit more playful and like improvisational given that like he levitates things and and disappears into smoke and all kinds of stuff while you're battling him but like it is definitely the boss track vibes. Yeah, this is certainly the least high tech sounding. It's very much mm. traditional, much more orchestral. I put down the phrase jousting knights, mm. um, which is kind of like people riding on horseback coming at each other, you know, sort of like used in a Pokemon context. So that was sort of the the vibe I got there. You you mentioned a little bit about his character. Since there's no overarching story like there is with the other games, um, you kind of have to guess at what's going on there. Whether this guy is supposed to be some high-up official who's holding some sort of big tournament or something like that, or, or what his background is and why he is the way he is. 
the the track is maybe not as whimsical as you would expect from a very magical character being the final boss of the game, I guess. That that isn't the word I would really use to to describe this. I don't know, Anne, do you have any agree, disagree on that one? I definitely agree. Like, given that like when you beat him, like he gives you a crown and like you get the title of Poketopia like king or queen. Like I can kind of get and, and given that, you know, the courtyard theme also had a very kind of fantasy medieval vibe to it too. Like I can see what they were going for. But yeah, it's very surprising. Like that's a definite choice to not go with again something more magical or mischievous or or, you know, just something that seems to reflect who this guy looks to be on the paper. But overall, I think it's pretty successful, you know, tonally as a last uh, big battle, um, mm. you know, that you've come to the end of the of thing there. So I think it, it definitely works in that regard. Yeah, definitely, definitely. All right, well, let's talk about some of the other sound-based aspects here. One thing they did bring back from the stadium games that wasn't in the GameCube uh, Coliseum and XD Guild of Darkness games is there is an announcer for this. Now, it's not... Ted Lewis. Uh, it's not the announcer that was used in the early part of the series, and I'm not even sure if the anime, I wish someone, I hope someone knows, um, at this point was using an announcer for like the big end of arc league battles and stuff like that. Um, the announcer, at least in the English version of the game, is Roger Parsons, the announcer for the TV show. Um, the person who does the intro at the start of the episode usually and usually at the end of the episode as well and has been doing that other than a brief period during Hoenn for the entire run up to this day. So you, you do get a little bit of a different vibe because the you know, the announcer for the TV show is overall is a little different than what you would expect for like a sports casting announcer. So he does have phrases for like all the Pokemon, a lot of the moves and stuff like that. One nice thing is that since this is a disc-based game and not a uh, tiny N64 cartridge, the fidelity is a lot better <laughs> because they didn't have to resort to using super heavy Factor Five based compression to fit a ton of audio clips into this game, which was nice. And what are your sort of thoughts on the announcer? And, you know, when you play this, you usually leave it on or off. It is switchable. I remember having it on. Um, I kind of thought it was just a fun, I, like, I found it a fun addition, like, again, because I love the Pokemon anime, so anything that kind of makes me feel like I'm living in the world of the anime is always a good thing in my book. I do know that a lot of people, some of the people I played with, definitely a lot of people on the internet found it a little bit annoying and preferred to toggle it off. But I liked it. And uh, we can't look up every territory on here. Um, I'm not sure what they did in, like, Europe and stuff like that. Um, but uh, we did look up at the Japanese info. And uh, what do you have on there? Yeah, so the um, narrator for this game uh, appears to be, as best I can tell looking it up, a gentleman uh, named Horiuchi Kenyu. Um, Mr. Horiuchi uh uh, he's a voice actor who's done a lot of work on Pokemon and is, he, he seems to be like the the second narrator. It looks like, I think it's Unsho Ishizuka, um, who was like the original voice of the narrator, voice of the Professor Oak. And it appears that 
this guy, Horiji, uh, did the narrator on, like, the Pokemon side stories, and I don't see him getting a lot of other credits for being the narrator until Sun and Moon, where he's, you know, doing Samson Oak and then kind of getting a lot more uh, credits as narrator. So I don't know when exactly who did what voice when, but it looks like, for whatever reason, in this game, Horiuchi Kenyu got got the job to be the narrator for this game. Yeah, one thing I remember here is actually um, one of the new Gen 4 moves is Trick Room. And when that's used, uh, they're not impersonating the actor directly, but I think I've heard the Japanese one for this and also the English one. It sounds like they're doing a, like in terms of their vocal like meter and spacing and stuff, they're trying to do an impression of sort of those really corny impressions people do of William Shatner from Star Trek. (laughs) Uh, as Captain Kirk, when he's spacing out his words really far apart, it sounds kind of like that. They're not impersonating mm. Shatner's actual voice, but that one really did stick out to me. I remember hearing the Japanese one back in like 2008 at uh, they did a small mini competition at Worlds that year. It wasn't labeled as an actual Worlds uh, Championship because it was just U.S. and Japan. But I did get to hear some of the Japanese stuff there, and yeah, that quote is. Um, it definitely sounds like they're trying to, to sort of mimic that. There's also other weird stuff that can happen, like when you attack your own Pokemon. Um, that's come up. I've heard of that one. Um, they did kind of have to stop using that once we got into the Heart Cold Soul Silver era because it didn't support all the features. We'll talk more about that in the game discussion. But yeah, I, I think it's kind of nice having that back. All right, well, there are some other things in there. There's stuff like the Pokemon Cries, which I think are pretty standard at this point. But let's sort of give our overall opinion of the sound design and music of this game. Overall, I liked this, but you might have caught that I wasn't as impressed by the the work here as I was with the GameCube, you know, Gale of Darkness and Coliseum games had some pretty nice stuff in there. I don't know, Anne, it sounds like you were a little more uh, in the groove than I was on this one. I don't know about in the groove. Um, I liked it for what it was. I definitely feel like, like it being the first Wii game kind of shows in a way. Like, I think this is what I was trying to say earlier, beginning of the episode. Like, like I feel like it's a step up in some ways from some of the GameCube games that we've talked about in the past of just its general, uh, sound design and like, um, music and the quality and like a lot of things and just down to the gameplay itself even but for like one of the first games for a brand new console that has like so many unique features to the Wii that you know we had never seen in other types of consoles before it it feels a little lacking so and I kind of felt like as the years go by and like more Wii specific games like things you could only do on a Wii and with a Wii mote and like you know really made use of the console's unique features um and its expanded capacities and um like I don't know higher def like you you probably know a lot more about the technical aspect of those types of things than I do I feel like over time it um its age began to show that this you know, was a step up maybe from what had came before, but not such a step up that it continued to be amazing as the months, years went on. 
if that makes sense. <laughs> Perhaps a little bit. I mean, by this point, like sound engines are pretty close to where they are today. They're not quite as advanced. They don't have quite the same capacity. Like from a technical perspective, the Wii is basically a somewhat more powerful GameCube. There's always that famous phrase, two GameCubes duct taped together or whatever. <laughs> it's, it sort of depends on how much you're using the motion controls and other features and stuff like that. It is a beefed up GameCube in many ways. But sort of from a, a structural standpoint, I had said in one of the earlier tracks that I felt that the there wasn't as, as much melodical stuff in there. And I think that's kind of true kind of across the board. I didn't have to double check like the length of the loops in this game versus the GameCube games. And I they're found out that they're small. actually not that dissimilar. But the way that they are structured is is different. It seems like there's um, just not as much given to sort of the main groove of a lot of these, with some exceptions. Um, like Joe's theme, obviously, is pretty much straight jazz there, and, and the Mysterial's uh, battle theme is, is sort of like that. But... Stuff like the Main Street Coliseum, maybe it, it doesn't, and, and I'm sure some of this is by design, some of it is probably time constraints um, and stuff like that. This um, like this is going back to sort of the radio uh, producer or whatever you want to say part of me, is that a lot of this music is not as, as radio-worthy, I would think, as hmm. some of the stuff from the other games. I, I don't know. How do, you, how do you feel about that, Anne? Um, I think you bring up a really interesting point. Um, like my first thought kind of is related to like splicing music together for like, say, a dance or a skating or, you know, like some sort of performance in which like you're thinking of you don't want you don't want to spend too much time in any one particular feel of the music. Like you want to use cuts where it's like you get a sense of that song or that beat or that emotion and then you move on. Um, so that the whole track feels like it goes several different places um, without ever lingering on any one thing so long that it feels stale and passe. But you also bring up a point that you don't listen to that type of music on the radio. You like it fulfills its purpose of being an art piece. So I think there's an interesting, yeah, a question to ask, I guess, the composer and the music mixers and everybody in this game of like, do they intend their song to like um, fulfill again, like a specific purpose where they don't necessarily want to let the track breathe and settle into its groove and its melody and whatever, because it, they're trying to accomplish something specific or as you know, you point out, would it have been better to make the tracks a little longer, a little fuller, maybe a little more melody or a little more to it so that, it has listening power and you could listen to it it just for the sake of it being a song um, and, say, you know, play it on a radio, play it as part of a playlist, that sort of thing. Like, I don't know. There's an interesting discussion to be had here. Yeah. And, and like I said, I think I suspect some of the structural things there are just because they didn't have as much time as they would have liked to, to get this out there. Also um, a good point. I do think the music and the game, which we'll talk more about in our bonus segment, did turn out better than another early platform or early in the system's life Pokemon game we talked about last year, which was Pokemon Dash. I do think this turned out better than that. But, yeah, so... Yeah, I think that kind of... There's a lot of things that, you know, what-ifs in regards to this game. What if they had had more time and stuff? And we'll go into some of those during our bonus segment. But uh, I, I'm not 
unhappy with the music, but I'm not as impressed by it um, as I was with Coliseum and Gale Darnus. And maybe that's just because it isn't as much of a departure from what came before in certain ways. Like, you can definitely tell the same person worked on all three of these games. But I don't know. I mean, this is something maybe we'll have to ponder, and if you have any thoughts, do let us know. And speaking of letting us know, we have some feedback we'd like to go over. All right, yeah, we always appreciate feedback. Uh, You can send it to pokepress at gmail.com, or you can leave a comment on one of these videos if you happen to be watching this uh, on YouTube. Um, Or you can always drop us a line on Twitter, at pokepress. But in any case, we do have a little bit to go over. So I do have one comment here. This is actually from uh, one in a series of videos I've put out over the last month or so. Uh, uh, The month before we recorded this, I had a chance to go to my first convention in a very long time, at least as far as covering it as press, and that is Anime Milwaukee. And I got to go to a lot of press sessions. I still have a few more I need to edit as of the recording of this. But this is Johnny Young Bosch. I hope I said that sort of close to right. Uh, he's kind of best known, well, really for a lot of things. His his sort of into the Pokemon realm is that in the Pokemon Origins miniseries, in one of the early parts, he does the voice of Brock, uh, which, you know, in the main anime is obviously for many seasons a big part. This case, not as much, but I still wanted to get some uh, information from him. He's actually probably best known as being, I guess, the second Black Power Ranger in the uh, localized version of of that show. Um, But we also talk about some of his other stuff there. The comment I got is from Tyreek Correa. I have no idea if I said that anywhere close to right. I'm very sorry if I terribly butchered that. Um, But one thing I mentioned in the video itself via a little pop-up annotation is that uh, he mentions how he studies for a lot of the rules when he applies for them, which makes a lot of sense, generally speaking. But uh, this is a guy who has a martial arts background, and I felt that was very much in keeping the way he described it, uh, the tone he used, in with um, sort of his martial arts, someone who had had gone through a lot of martial arts training. Now, uh, uh, Tyreek TC here says, uh, Johnny's attitude towards this is just a matter of good sense, which I kind of agree with. Obviously, it's always a good idea whenever you're... uh, being asked uh, for uh, if he'd be interested in a role or something like that to do a little research. Uh, he was only doing martial arts for exercise at this point, and, you know, he does seem to be in relatively good shape, so I'll get, certainly give him that. <laughs> Wasn't going to ask him to prove it right in there in front of me. <laughs> but, like I said, I think it's just the tone of voice that he used in there. You could tell this was someone who was very purposeful in a lot of the stuff he does and, and formal and has that sort of thing, despite being an actor in, you know, Power Rangers, which is... You know, obviously based around martial arts, but also uh, fairly doesn't take itself too seriously. <laughs> I don't know. Anna, I, I know that you've had a chance to take a look at some of these. I don't know if you had any thoughts on this particular one. Um, Not a ton, but I would agree. Like, uh, he, he seems like a person who, if he's going to do something, he's going to, as you say, put some thought into it, do some research, and do it... You, quote right like do it do it in a way that he feels satisfied with which is really admirable and and good for him definitely i think that he brings a very different personality to brock like and you know the character of brock in pokemon origins is a very different personality than the brock we've come to know and love and so i kind of like the idea that the person behind that was you know probably put some real thought into it in the way that he seems to put a lot of thought and effort and care into everything he does. 
Yeah, yeah. It, it like I said, everyone. I always recommend that you do research on a role before you you know try to put yourself in in there. But the way he said it, it just impressed me as I was editing this video, and I wanted to put a little note in there. Um, in case you're curious, some of the other interviews we have here, which should all be on the podcast feed by the time you hear this, there. People like uh, Billy Kay, another last name I'm not too good on, uh, but he actually did the voice of Dr. Zed in um, Secrets of the Jungle, so that's another one to watch out for. But yeah, it was nice getting back in there, although, like I said, I kind of went straight back into the into the fire there with six different uh, press sessions. Still have two more I'm working on, so that'll, that'll be some stuff to look forward to. But uh, yeah, we always appreciate feedback on this or anything else. You can always drop us a comment or drop us an email, pokepress at gmail.com. All right. Well, we've just started on the fourth generation. Fourth generation has a lot of side games in it. In, in particular, since we go in North American release order, 2008 had a lot of Pokemon side games, at least three or four, I believe, that we'll be talking about on here. But the first one in release order is... Pokemon Mystery Dungeon, Explorers of Time, Slash Darkness, Slash Sky. So yeah, we, we mentioned, we did our uh, Red-Blue Rescue Team discussion last year, and th these are the follow-ups on the strictly DS games, no Game Boy Advance on any of these. And uh, they were two released initially, Time and Darkness, and, and this was so popular. This actually, we talked about Pokemon Stadium a little bit earlier. For a long time, that had been the record for the best-selling side games. These are the ones that broke that record. And I guess probably until, like, Pokemon Go, which is kind of its own category, were the best-selling Pokemon side games. But yeah, some really, really fantastic um, thematic music in this one, which is always something I, th I think I kind of drive for. And it's going to be tough to pick out just the tracks we want to use for this one, but we're still going to try and do it. And I think we're going to have a lot of fun discussing this one. <laughs> and I assume you're looking forward to this one as well. I am. It's going to be... Uh, I, I love the Mystery Dungeon series. I'm not as familiar with this one as I was the first one, but nonetheless, I'm very excited. Yeah, this one does not has not been remade, at least not yet. Uh, I kind of suspect they'll actually do a, an original Pokemon Mystery Dungeon game before they remake these, but definitely looking forward to it. Until then, Anne, thank you very much for being on. Thank you for having me. This has been Stephen Reich. All right, folks, thanks. Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest podcast. We'd appreciate if you rate or review us on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at pokepress on Twitter. Okay, so let's talk about Pokemon Battle Revolution as a game. I kind of mentioned during our main discussion that I, as far as early console generation Pokemon games go, I did prefer this to Pokemon Dash that we talked about last time, both musically and otherwise. But I do kind of suspect that this was another game that was a victim of a short development cycle and not having enough time to totally flesh stuff out. We, we kind of have mentioned there's no, like, overarching story or anything like that. Was that a disappointment to you, Anne? Um, in some ways. Like, at the time, like I was saying, I was playing it in kind of very specific circumstances, and, like, the game wasn't mine. So it's like, I loved it for what it was at the time. 
but I typically prefer games with a bit more of a plot, a bit more of a role play element and, you know, being able to explore a little more. So I definitely think that while it didn't necessarily, like, it wasn't something I was consciously thinking of, like, oh, this game, like, doesn't have a plot. I hate it. But I definitely think it's something that could, like, the omission of that could have hurt it over time. Um, especially, especially maybe for some other people who were, say, binge playing it and not just kind of playing it sporadically with other people. Yeah, and you can kind of see how they could have, you know, if they had more time. I assume that they made this decision not to have an overarching story fairly early, but you could totally see how this Pokutopia could have functioned like the Ore region um, and could have had a thing where it, where it builds up towards the end there, where you have to, you know, battle, like Mysterial has some sort of role in, in, the, in the plot, whether he's, you know, truly a villain or more of like this person holding this big tournament or something like that. That is the framing device of it. But unfortunately, like I said, we, we did not get that. At the same time, it doesn't have, you know, some of the side stuff from the first two stadium games. It doesn't have mini games or other stuff like that. Did you kind of miss those? Yes. That is, hmm. That is something that I miss. Like, I... Hmm. <laughs> like it's it's kind of unfair to want it to be previous Pokemon games when it's its own thing. But yes, like I wanted more in the way of like especially since you could play with people on the internet and you could play with your friends and like I wanted more in the way of like tournaments and maybe more location if for single player, especially I think if I had owned this game, I would have really wanted more locations to explore and, like, again, more stadiums to compete at and things like that. Yeah, it definitely does feel like it's on on the thin side. And like I said, I think they would have needed another 6 or 12 months. I don't know if it was a super high priority that Nintendo wanted to have an online game and maybe perhaps specifically a Pokemon game at or near launch with or within the first, you know, 6 to 12 months, if that was their goal there or, or what. But Definitely. Uh, but but you know even more so than some of the other games that this seems to not have a lot of use outside of unless you're going to you know have diamond and or pearl have access to those. I suppose the one nice thing about all of that though is that it's since you can do it all wirelessly, it's much easier to transfer your teams over to the to the Wii that way. But maybe at the same time that you know the like the first two Steam games had the ability to play your games on the TV using the transfer pack, and this doesn't have anything like that either. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, for real, I felt like I, again at the time that I was experiencing it, it had a lot going for it. In again, the ability to play online, all the stuff you could do, like transferring Pokemon between games, like was super cool at the time. Um, just again it very quickly became not the only game to allow you to play with people online, not even the only Pokemon game. And like again, it didn't take long for people to, especially people who didn't have Diamond and Pearl, to be like, there's not much else here. So again, it's like, I don't want to knock it too hard because I have very fond memories of legitimately enjoying this game. But I can definitely see how just there's not that much to this game and i can see people very quickly realizing that the the pond is not super deep 
All right, well, let's talk about some of the technical aspects. First of all, this game, I would say graphically, is definitely an improvement over the GameCube games. I, I think the frame rate is better. I don't know if it's a full 60, but it seems to be at least a more stable 30. And as far as the Pokemon models, now there are still some of those that date all the way back to like the N64, unfortunately. But they did redo some of the older ones. Um, uh, some of the legendary Pokemon, I think, got a, a decent facelift. Um, and, you know, the new Gen 4 Pokemon, I think, look pretty decent. And, you know, the attack effects look pretty nice. There's, for the weather effects, there's actually some pretty good uh, light distortion stuff in rain and ice and, and sandstorm and stuff. So I think that worked out pretty well. How do you, what did you think of this game graphically, Anne? Yeah, like I'm not as impressed with like the Pokemon models just because, again, they, they appear, they're not, but they appear very similar to like stuff from like classic Pokemon Stadium. But I do love like the settings and like places where you play at night and there's water of like effects and flame effects and like neon lights in this Poketopia place. And, you know, being able to customize your character, I think there's a lot of, in the graphics that's very fun and very updated and new. Like, it, it's not like I looked at the Pokemon and went like, oh my gosh, that's so much better than it used to be. But I do think the overall use of graphics in this game is just a, a more polished package, I guess. It still has a very soft, smooth, cartoony, almost plastic look to all of it, but... The style, I feel like, has really settled into itself, and therefore it's fun. Okay, the next thing I want to, kind of want to talk about is the characters, uh, which, which do have models, although a lot of them are very clearly derived from ones in the uh, GameCube games that were produced. There is a bit of a character customization feature. There are about half a dozen or so archetypes, a couple male ones, a couple female ones in there. Now, I, I do have to point out, this is a Wii game, but you're not allowed to use Miis as your avatar in the game. Was that a disappointment? or <laughs> I, I, didn't, it, I didn't think about it until you just said it, but now I'm disappointed. <laughs> that would have been so cute. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure exactly how well it would have worked with the art style that was in the rest of the game, and that may have been a problem there. There are a couple of Pokemon games that use Miis, notably uh, My Pokemon Ranch, uses uh, Miis, and also uh, Pokemon Rumble Blast. Those are both Umbrella games um, that use Miis. This one does not, the trainers. And that's, you know, it, I don't know. It, it seems like a bit of a missed opportunity, but I'm not sure how well it would have worked if they had tried that. Um, or if, you know, because this was such an early game, they didn't have a chance to really do that in there. Possibly. But just, you know, open letter to the um, Nintendo company, like just any time you have the opportunity to add your me into anything, the answer is always yes. Like even if it doesn't yeah. fit the art style, it's just we all want this. Yeah, I mean, me's do still exist on the Switch to a certain extent. They're just not. I can't um, use them. They're for not anything. as big a deal <laughs> as they were during the the Wii and 3DS and Wii U system generations um mm -hmm. but it, it was a, a big feature and i'm sure there were some folks who wanted to use their me in this game and and there would be later wii games like i mean obviously it was a key feature in wii sports uh but it would also come to play in like the mario kart wii and other stuff like that now what do you think about the overall difficulty of the game that was something we mentioned especially with pokemon stadium 2 is that the game can get insanely difficult 
Like you can definitely beat the main game of Battle Revolution using just rental passes. It's, it gets a little harder from there on out. But I don't know, Anne. What are your thoughts? Um, I don't remember this game being terribly difficult. Uh, we did transfer over some of uh, my friends' Pokemon from um, their DS. So, yeah, I... Hmm, I'm trying to remember. I, I don't remember it being too terribly difficult. I don't remember noticing a huge difference between the rental Pokemon and the ones that you trained up from your other games. So, I feel like in that sense, they didn't make it too much of a of a barrier against um people playing yeah yeah the, the difficulty system in this there are kind of multiple rounds like there were but it's each place like levels up individually each stadium or coliseum or whatever mm-hmm. um unlike where in the stadium games where you would beat everything and then you offer a harder mode uh in this one i think there are like seven or eight or something like that levels to each one and it does get legitimately difficult by the time you level it all the way up and some of the places actually change to new battle formats in the post game, but it, I, there weren't really points where I felt going through it on the first time uh, on the early levels where I was. There were super cheap stuff like you sometimes saw in the stadium games. Depending on what, you're, what you think, that could be an improvement or not. Um, <laughs> we had mentioned some of the online features that this was a showcase of sorts for online play. Um, but sort of the distinction was, you know, the first of all, the online, um, the base games could do that. Although I never, for Diamond and Pearl, I never really got to play them online um, at all. It has to do more with like wireless security and the DS not supporting a very strong version of it. But I don't know, maybe that wasn't the showstopper they had kind of <laughs> hoped it was. Um, and it sounds like, I don't know if, if you wouldn't have been able to play this online on the Wii Mini. But I don't know no. if, if when you were originally seeing this game, if it uh, sort of struck you, uh, if, if you got to see any online games when you were in Japan. We did a little bit, and we kind of had fun with it, kind of more for the novelty. It's it's actually kind of funny. Um, the half of the dorm I was in for just regular university students, we my friends like paid for like to install internet. On the grad student side of the dorms, I think they had like internet as part of their dorms, but it was really so I don't have a ton of fond memories of the of um, online battling. It was kind of like, again, the novelty of it. It's like, oh my gosh, we're connecting with someone from Singapore. And then eventually the internet connection would be really bad and we would not get very far with that. So that's, the, that's mostly what I remember of online play for this specific game. I feel like um, other games did it better. <laughs> I suppose, but I mean, from a quality perspective, obviously this is a turn-based game, so it doesn't have like the constraints that you would have. I mean, obviously they did online with Smash Brothers Brawl, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about probably at some point, um, which had its issues with latency and stuff that they've yeah. firmed up for the later generations of that. Mario Kart Wii did very well online, but even then, that seems more ambitious than this, since that's a, real, you know, yeah. a real-time racing game. Where if if things aren't aren't great, uh, you know, but that that seemed to work out decently well. But yeah, I'm not sure this was technically the greatest showcase. I don't know that any of the other Pokemon games on there really had online, other than I guess my Pokemon Ranch had some form of it. And you know, the other thing we should mention here: this is the last of its kind. Uh, this is still like the main series games did not go th- true 3D until they hit the 3DS with X and Y. 
you know, there's still a whole another generation of what are essentially 2D games for the most part, but they didn't bother to put, you know, a, a Battle Revolution 2 or Battle Revolution Black and White out for the Wii. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is the last game like this, and I think the sales might have uh, factored into that. This game only sold like a little over a million copies, which, you know, might sound like a pretty decent amount, and for a lot of games it would be. But when you consider that they sold about 4 million copies of the original Pokemon Stadium on the N64, which had about a third the install base over its lifetime, as um, the Wii eventually would. And, and there might have been other factors, like the Wii was insanely hard to get for a lot of folks, so certain games may not have uh, may, may have fallen by the wayside in the interim or stuff like that. I'm not sure, but this is this is the last of these stadium-type games. And, you know, maybe they're completely redundant now, now especially if the stuff is on the Switch. But, I don't know, Anne, what, what are your kind of ideas about that? I, I kind of agree with you. Like, again, just that not everybody was able to get the, the Wii right when it came out. And this game came kind of on the earlier tail of the Wii. By the time a lot of people got that console, this game may have kind of petered out of the zeitgeist. Like, just the prestige of the Nintendo 64 and the original Pokemon Stadium, like, I I still know people who have an N64 and play Pokemon Stadium and, like, invite people over for game night with it. Like, it's just a game that, a game and a console together that, again, were were very fun and, and, you know, fulfill the nostalgia dopamine hit and and just again we're just packaged together at the right time to still be a thing whereas i feel like the wii and this game's placement and that it not being so i don't know groundbreaking and beloved as maybe the creators hoped it would be i can see why it doesn't have that same maybe cachet as some of the other stadium style games and, you know, coming so close to the release in each region of Diamond and Pearl may have, you know, uh, hamstrung them a bit because although this is, I believe, you can sync um, like Platinum and uh, Heart, Gold, Soul, Silver with this, I think there's a way to do that. I think it is compatible. You lose some of the features there, like the Rotom forms aren't in there mm. and some of the other stuff. And, Although the Wii is online, there isn't really a way to patch disc games. Remember, they had to do that weird workaround thing for Skyward Sword on the <laughs> Wii when they found that uh, really bad bug, and they needed to put out basically a WiiWare title to repair your save data so that you could get around that should you fall into that category. <laughs> um, and so, as a result, they would have had to put out like basically a whole new disc to add features from Platinum, Heart, Gold, Soul, Silver, to say nothing of doing, you know, Pokemon Black and White. So that may have worked out against it, versus the stadium games, which tend to be released at a point where the, the that generation of Pokemon was fairly mature, mm. you know, or, or far enough along that they, they had a better idea of what to expect, versus, like I said, in, in the fourth generation, they really started to push this intra-generation evolution, and this game was like that. But yeah, I, I think, to be honest, the, the main thing is the, the it didn't sell that well is the lack of content, like mini, not having either mini games or a single player mode, you know, story mode. 
Um, there obviously is a single-player mode you play through, but it's all just battles. There's not a story to go with it. Mm-hmm. The Having neither of those worked against it. And maybe, you know, just because the DS had wireless local play, this wasn't as necessary. I don't know. Variety of reasons, but we have not seen a game like this since. All the other Pokemon side games go in a different direction. Um, obviously, there are sort of successors. Like, I, I mean, you want to stretch Pokemon home is... Certainly takes care of the storage aspect of these types of games, but I don't know. Maybe that's closer to my Pokemon Ranch, but <laughs> kind of sad. I, I kind of do wish that this had been, you know, right up there with the stadium games in terms of sales and reputation and stuff. And I think Nintendo probably had hoped that would happen, but it really didn't. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, I think they, they just needed another six or 12 months on this game, which is sort of the same thing we came conclusion we came to with with Pokemon Dash, an early DS Pokemon game. Um, but I think in, in this particular case, it really would have made a difference if they had been able to fully realize their vision a bit more and release this, like I said, six to 12 months later. I would agree with that. I feel like a little extra time to to polish some things, come up with some other ideas, and, and again, have the time to implement them could could not have hurt it 